0: Welcome to Downtown Los Angeles, or DTLA as locals call it. I've lived in DTLA since 1995. My name is Don Spivak, and I'm a professor at the Price School of Public Policy at the University of Southern California. But you can call me Mr. Downtown, as some people call longtime locals. My passion is all things downtown. Look around. You should be standing in front of the Bradbury Building on Broadway. Los Angeles was founded in 1781 as a small Spanish ranch town and its first major settlement was right here in downtown. Sure, it's a concrete jungle now, but this very spot used to be farmland and vineyards. Imagine watching cattle graze right in front of you. By the early 1900s, downtown Los Angeles was bustling. But sadly, as the city sprawled toward the ocean in the mid 20th century, DTLA went from city center to a sort of ghost town and for decades downtown languished. But that has changed. Today I'm going to introduce you to some of the people who over the last decade have made DTLA a vibrant hub. You should be in front of the Bradbury building on Broadway. Look across the street at the Grand Marquis. Orson Chaplin is going to tell you more about that theater you may recognize his last name because he is the grandson of the late silent movie star Charlie Chaplin.
1: Most people associate movie making with Hollywood, which is a real place, but in the early days of cinema when my grandfather was making films, downtown was the place to be. When Sid Grauman opened the Million Dollar Theater in 1918, it was LA's first grand movie palace. Grauman would go on to build many of the great movie palaces in Hollywood, including the famous Grauman's Chinese. In fact, Grauman was partly responsible for shifting the entertainment district from downtown LA to Hollywood in the 1920s. But this was his first theater in Los Angeles, and it was the most opulent movie palace of its time, hence its name. If you look above the marquee, you can see sculptor Joseph Mora's elaborate Spanish colonial revival details, including multiple statues, longhorn skulls, and other odd features. These lavish ornaments were used by Gramman and other theaters at the time to lure in patrons. For Gramman and his competitors, the theater was part of the show. Within a few years, Broadway had 12 movie palaces in just six blocks, the highest concentration of cinemas anywhere in the world. In 1925, Gold Rush, which was Charlie's favorite project, had its premiere right here at the Million Dollar Theater. Some people might think the tragic mountain crossing of the Donner Party, which famously ended in starvation, cannibalism, and death, is an odd inspiration for a comedy, but my grandfather always believed that ridicule and tragedy went hand in hand. Gold Rush continues to be an iconic comedy of the silent era, which would please Charlie. When it was released, he said, this is the picture that I want to be remembered by. All right, now turn around and face the Bradbury Building. I'm going to leave you here with Harry Medved. Harry is gonna show you around this historic structure so I know you're in good hands.
2: Hey, my name is Harry Medved. I'm the co-author of Location Filming in Los Angeles. Right now, you should be standing outside of this nondescript building, which is called the Bradbury Building it's an office building from the late 1800s but wait till you see the inside so let's go inside right now and you're going to see one of the most iconic interiors of all of downtown Los Angeles walk past the first staircase on your right toward the center of the lobby which is open to the public they keep walking and stop on this little patch of small black tiles past the first stairwell. Take a moment to look around. This is one of LA's most breathtaking spaces. Let's get a better view of it. Facing away from the front door, head toward the stairwell at the far end of the lobby. Go up to the first landing, but stop there the rest of the building is off limits to the public because it's the home of the LAPD's Internal Affairs Division. You'll notice that everything in this building is painstakingly taken care of. See the elevators? They are original. They still run on tables on counterweights. And even though the Bradbury was built over a hundred years ago, you'll probably remember it from the future. It was featured prominently in the sci-fi movie Blade Runner, because its design evokes both the past, after all, Blade Runner was a bit of a film noir, and the future. And that's what makes the building so special. You see, Louis Bradbury was this millionaire who wanted to build something memorable. And after rejecting a design from the original architect, he picked the architect's draftsman, George Wyman, to design this building. Wyman was a spiritualist, and he was actually hesitant to take the job until he consulted with his younger brother, even though his younger brother had been dead for several years. You see, Wyman used a planchette, which is a precursor to the Ouija board, to contact his dead brother, who allegedly responded, take the Bradbury, you will be successful. And it turned out George Wyman's dead brother was right. Bradbury and Wyman took inspiration in building this building from a utopian science fiction novel of the time called Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy. And Wyman created this awe-inspiring space with visual complexity. See how the massive skylight just floods this place with light and all the birdcage elevators are surrounded by illumination and intricate wrought iron? Well, that's wrought iron that was made in France and displayed at the Chicago World Fair before being installed in this building. Okay, let's head back downstairs. Thanks to the architecture, the Bradbury, has become something of a movie star in its own right. Make a U-turn at the bottom of the stairs and head left through the door under the stairwell. Aside from Blade Runner, the Bradbury has been a location in dozens of other movies, including DOA, Shockproof, Wolf, Marlowe, Lethal Weapon 4, Murphy's Law, M, 500 Days of Summer, and the Academy Award-winning Best Picture, The Artist. So make sure you keep an eye out for the Bradbury building the next time you head to the movies. Keep walking down the hall and head outside the door into the little park behind the Bradbury building to meet someone who's going to take you even further back to the early 1800s, your next DTLA expert.
3: Go ahead and exit the Bradbury building and make your way down the stairs and past the metal tables on your right. My name is Pastor J. Edgar Boyd, Senior Pastor of First AMA Church of Los Angeles. Betty Mason helped to found the first African Methodist Episcopal Church of Los Angeles. But we will learn more about that in just a minute. Okay, make your way over to the beginning of the 82 foot long concrete wall art piece on your right. You'll see the wall is divided by landmark decades in Biddy Mason's life. Let's stop in front of the year 1810. Biddy was born enslaved August 15, 1818 in Hancock County, Georgia which is about an hour or so from Atlanta. Unfortunately, there's not a lot known about her early life. However, she was in her late 20s at the time she was given as a wedding present to the John Smith family. Go ahead and walk slowly to the 1830s and pause there. At that time, Biddy had many responsibilities. She cared for the Smith family children, and she was in charge of all of her other slaves, and she started to learn the skill of midwifing. Notice the series of four imprints on the concrete here. A medical kit, a bottle, a spool of thread, and a pair of scissors. These items represent Biddy's time as a midwife, and there's a story behind the bottle. Amazingly, it was found perfectly intact when workers were excavating the 10-story parking lot right behind you. It's thought that the bottle may have held pills or some other medicine. The artist had a replica bottle made from rubber that she used to make the imprint without damaging the original bottle, which we will see in just a minute. Move along now. In the 1840s, the Smith family decided to move to Utah from either Mississippi or Alabama with a planned stop in California. Biddy and other slaves made their roughly 2,500 mile journey walking behind the horse-drawn carriages that carried the Smiths. Make your way down to the 1850s. When the Smiths and their servants arrived in San Bernardino, California, Biddy did not know what state she was in, nor did she know California was a free state. When she learned of this, she petitioned Judge Benjamin Hayes for not just her freedom, but for the freedom of all of her other enslaved friends. Biddy feared that John Smith might leave town with all of them before the court case was resolved, so she asked the judge that they be jailed so they'd be safe. Judge Hayes agreed and jailed them, but struggled with the decision. Finally, in January of 1856, he did the right thing and granted Biddy and other enslaved persons their freedom. The handwriting on the certificate is tough to read, but if you count down to the seventh line and the second word in it, you can see Biddy's name. Judge Hayes has some good karma coming his way regarding his wise decision. Roughly 10 years later, Biddy, by pure coincidence, saved Judge Hayes' son's life after a serious accident. Move along now to the 1860s. Biddy continued to deliver hundreds and hundreds of babies while saving hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Eventually, she purchased this plot of land we're standing on for $250. You can see the deed on the wall in front of you. Take a few steps now down to the 1870s. In 1872, Biddy Mason held a meeting in her home on this block and organized the First African Methodist Episcopal Church of Los Angeles. I'm very thankful of the life and the journey as well as the history of Biddy Mason because had it not been for her heroism and the brave history that she created, our First AME Church would not have been established. And if that had not been done, very possibly, I would not be pastoring in the greatest city in the United States of America. Okay, take a few steps down now to the 1890s. The last thing I will mention on the wall is a large X. This was Biddy's signature. She was never learned enough to write nor read, but that didn't stop her from writing a major chapter in the history of the city of Los Angeles. Turn around and look to your right. You should see a pair of brightly lit ticket kiosks. through an open doorway. Walk toward them. There's a bank of elevators on your right. Walk there. This is the part of Biddy's Park that few people know about. That black and white picture is Biddy and her three daughters on the front porch of their home. It is placed right here because this is supposedly where the front porch of her home stood. Look at the window to your left. See the glass bottle and the flowers in it as it placed on the windowsill? That's the bottle that was excavated from this site. I love that it's preserved here. Thank you for exploring the park. Its existence here means a lot to me as thus keeping the story of Biddy alive. All right, time to hand to Don who will take it from here.
0: Turn around and with the photo behind you, turn right toward the First Cup coffee shop and continue walking through the breezeway toward the street. Biddy Mason was worth roughly 250 dollars to $300,000 when she died in 1891. Today that would be worth roughly $9.6 million. It is said that her family was one of the richest African-American families in Los Angeles at the time. So it seems fitting that the street we are approaching became L.A.'s financial district a few decades later. Originally, this street was called Calle Primavera, but by the late 1800s had been translated to Spring Street. You should be there now. Walk to the edge of the sidewalk and stop for a minute. Look to your left and right. In the 1920s, all the major financial institutions lined Spring Street, which was dubbed the Wall Street of the West. See the really tall white tower with the pyramid top to your left? Between the trees? That's City Hall, which was the tallest building in L.A. until 1961, due to an ordinance restricting building heights. With your back to the breezeway you just exited, turn right and start walking. Fearing L.A. would become overwhelmed with skyscrapers, the charter of the City of Los Angeles did not permit any portion of any building other than a purely decorative tower, to be more than 150 feet. Most developers weren't going to spend the money on anything decorative, so City Hall got the glory until the ordinance was repealed. See the building on your left called Banco Popular? It was built when the ordinance was in effect and stands at exactly 150 feet. But the beige building just past it, with the arched windows on the top floor That's the 12-story Continental Building, and it was built before the ordinance was passed, making it LA's first skyscraper. I really love walking this stretch of Spring Street because you can see a timeline of urban development. You should be approaching the corner of Spring Street and 4th Street. Cross here when it's safe. Now, I want to turn you over to Orson Chaplin, who will tell you a great story about the ornate building up ahead.
1: Hey, how's it going? let's go ahead and start walking down spring again in the same direction you were heading I'm Morrison Chaplin grandson of Charlie Chaplin who actually spent a lot of time downtown in fact he spent almost a year living right up here on your left do you see the large white and jade stone building with arched windows and black iron balconies across the street you should see a sign that says El Dorado but in Charlie's time this was the hotel stole Let's go ahead and start walking down Spring again in the same direction you were heading. In 1915, my grandfather lived at the Stowell while he created his most famous character, the Tramp. Charlie was already successful enough to stay somewhere much grander, but growing up poor made him thrifty. That background's probably what landed him at the Stowell and what inspired the Tramp. One night at the stole, Charlie returned to his room and found a telegram offering him an unheard amount of $25,000 for a two-week gig at the Hippodrome Theater in New York. When he called his current employer, Bronco Billy Anderson, to get permission, a bad connection forced him to shout into the phone. Because his windows faced the courtyard, his voice carried all over the hotel. So there was Charlie at 3 a.m. screaming, I don't intend to pass up $25,000 for two weeks work. Another guest opened up his window and shouted down, cut out that bull and go to sleep, you big dope. I don't know if that shut him up, but he did take the gig, which made him one of the highest paid entertainers of his time. Look to your right. See the large mural of a horse on the wall of a building? That's the Spring Arts Tower which was a series of banks over the years, but is now home to a cool spot owned by a bibliophile who is as passionate about art in downtown LA as performers like my grandfather were. Let's keep walking. This whole area has an artistic history. Thomas Edison filmed the first motion picture ever shot in LA right here. It was only 60 seconds of streetcars and people and horses, but it started an industry that has panned out pretty well for LA. All right, now let's go right on Fifth Street and stop in front of the entrance to The Last Bookstore. Shop owner Josh Spencer is gonna take it from here.
4: Hi, I'm Josh Spencer and I own The Last Bookstore. People always wonder, why would you open a brick and mortar bookstore when everyone else was getting out of that business? Well, let's head inside and I'll tell you why. Pause me while you go through the bag check and then press play once you're inside. As you walk in, head past the checkout counter made of books on your right and stop in front of the large white pillar. Go ahead, take a look around. This space is a massive 22,000 square feet, but my store wasn't always this big. I was selling books online when I heard rumblings that people downtown wanted an independent bookshop. I needed a place to store the books I was selling and figured why not make it a place with foot traffic to sell more books. Fortunately, the Spring Arts Tower had an opening for a new tenant, so in 2011, I filled it with my inventory. It was a gamble, but it's paid off. Okay, look through the wide space in the middle between the columns. Do you see the clock on the wall? Head toward it. You should be approaching the stage, but skirt to the left around the pillar and head under the clock. I gotta say, my wife is super relieved that we have the store now, so that our house isn't full of all these books. The store was a labor of love. Even my dad helped me. He refinished all the bookshelves, which we bought from a major chain bookstore that went out of business. Okay, if you're still facing the center of the room, turn to your right. The counter with the sell your stuff here sign is where we buy the books people need to unload. This is a big source of our inventory. Who wouldn't believe some of the gems people have brought to us? One guy tried to sell us a water-damaged book, missing not only its cover, but the second half of the book. He couldn't understand why we weren't buying it. Okay, let's head upstairs. While facing the counter, look up and to your left. See the sign that reads Elevator and Stairs? If you'd rather take the elevator, it's on the other side of the bookshelf. The stairs are just through these doors. Go ahead and pause me and press play when you get to the second floor. Alright, if you came up the elevator, turn left and if you came up the stairs, look in front of you to the right. Do you see the book sculpture in the corner at the top of the stairs? There's creative work made out of damaged books all over the last bookstore because we wanted a sense of discovery. Dave Lovejoy and Jenna Prieb did most of the book sculptures upstairs, including the one you're looking at now. They both have galleries on the Spring Arts Collective side of the building, which we'll go to in a little bit. Head to the railing and check out the view. You're looking at the former lobby of Citizens Bank, which opened in 1915. When we moved in almost 100 years later, we were just on that first floor. Then we expanded upstairs, where I wanted to make it the kind of bookstore you could get lost in. Now, turn to your right and head into a space I call the Labyrinth. Don't worry, you won't get lost, and there's no Minotaur in here, but you can definitely wander around for a few hours. Head down the center aisle, and ahead you'll see a porthole cut into the stack of books, like a window on a ship. Move towards it. When we built this space, I really wanted to juxtapose the neoclassical columns of the bank with steampunk sci-fi touches. You should be at the porthole now. It's really a fun place to take a photo. Go ahead and pause me if you want to snap and post one. Then walk past the porthole. On your right, you'll see the original bank vault. It's 100 years old, and nobody knows the Tumblr combination anymore. Well, let's head inside. Banks filled it with cash, but we turned it into the horror and true crime section. Check out the art installed on the back wall. The dials play on our Jules Verne steampunk vibe and make you feel like you could be the last man on earth trapped inside this vault. But don't worry, the door is still open. Now, let's head back into the labyrinth. As you exit the vault, turn left and stand in the little nook right there. You should see a tunnel next to the vault. We call this The Arch, and it was a collaboration between Scott Craig, who owns our record shop downstairs, myself, and my dad, who helped me build most of the store. Walk inside the arch and stop in the middle. Believe it or not, it took a week and a dozen laborers to build this arch, and there are over a thousand books surrounding you right now. Walk up to the end of the arch, turn right, and go through the doorway. You're now walking into the second part of the labyrinth see the multicolored arrow shaped sign that says art this way it's straight ahead hanging from the ceiling walk to it and turn left this part of the store has dozens of categories including one of my favorites survival continue walking between the shelves towards the end when you get to the end of the long row turn left Then head down the stairwell under the exit sign. Then stop and stand to the left side. When we were ready to expand the second floor, the landlord was already talking to a handful of artists about the space. In this hallway, a number of artists have small galleries where they make and sell their art. Their work really helps amplify the bookstore's industrial retro-future style. In a moment, you can pause me to check out the galleries as you walk down the hallway. At the end, you'll turn left and find the staircase you came up earlier. Okay, so pause me and when you're done exploring, head down the stairs and press play. I'll meet you there. Okay, let's walk back to the center of the bookstore and towards the front door. I love owning a bookstore in the heart of LA. Yes, we are the entertainment capital of the world, but people forget that Los Angeles is also a great literary city. We gave the world writers like Ray Bradbury, Joan Didion, Nathaniel West, and Raymond Chandler, not to mention Walter Mosley, James Elroy, and Charles Bukowski. As you pass the checkout counter made of books, you should see the entrance to the rare book and Arts Annex. This is our most recent edition, and I'm really proud of it. We've got some cool books inside. Turn right and head down to the display cases by the large desk. We have lots of first editions and signed copies you won't see in a typical bookstore. Being able to see things like this really helps connect our customers to the authors they love. That's just something you don't get online. I wanna make sure Downtown LA has access to all those great works, as well as the up and coming local authors who we feature. So thanks for checking out the last bookstore. Hopefully it isn't actually the last, but if it is, What a way to go. When you're done exploring, you can head outside and Don will meet you back on the sidewalk.
0: With the bookstore entrance behind you, go right and keep walking up Fifth Street. One of the things I hope you notice as you explore DTLA is the amazing diversity. In a sprawling city, this feels like a real urban center. I moved to LA to work on community development and urban planning. And when I relocated, it was important to me to live somewhere where I wouldn't be too dependent on my car. LA is known for its car culture, but a neighborhood like downtown is really best experienced on foot, where if you keep your eyes peeled, a simple trip to the market, a night out, Or even a wrong turn can be an opportunity to find hidden gems, new and old. You should be approaching Broadway. When you get to the corner, cross with the light and I'll meet you on the other side. You should be on the other side of Broadway. Go right and walk along Broadway. Compared to some cities, L.A. may seem young, but a lot of people don't realize its rich history. From the saloons and gunfights of the Old West, to the speakeasies of Prohibition, LA has always been a frontier, and I like to think of DTLA as continuing in that frontier spirit. We have kept alive all of the cultures and ethnicities that migrated here, and many of the rebellious American traditions, like Prohibition speakeasies. Do you see the building on your right? It has glazed green tile and a black metal facade on the bottom floor. This building, known as the Bumiller Building, was built in 1906 to house the high-end department store called Bon Marché, but now a Sprint store takes up the first floor. During the 1920s, speakeasies flourished in DTLA. In many of the buildings around you, anti-prohibition distillers were throwing parties filled with flappers, silent movie stars, and bathtub gin. Today, this speakeasy tradition continues at DTLA historical spots like the Varnish and the Edison but it's the originals that really interest me. Keep walking up Broadway while I tell you how the Bumiller building shook LA. By the 1920s during the height of Prohibition the Beaumarchais had closed and the Bumiller had become an apartment building. One night in 1921 there was an explosion and a fire which broke out in one of the rooms. It turns out, one of the tenants was operating an illegal whiskey still in his room. The flame under the still ignited a gas line and kaboom! The explosion shook the entire block. When firemen made their way into the room, they found splattered sour mash and the 10-gallon still blown to smithereens. But the bootlegger had disappeared and was never heard from again. You should be approaching the corner of Broadway and 4th Street. Cross to the other side of 4th Street when you have the light and I'll meet you there. Okay, turn left on 4th Street and keep walking. Do you see the huge white building across the street that takes up the entire block? This was the Broadway department store. Imagine the large windows on the first floor full of mannequins donning the gaming styles of the 1930s. While the Beaumarchais lasted just a few months, the Broadway department store was part of this neighborhood for nearly 80 years. In 1895, when the store first opened, Los Angeles was a roaring boomtown, right in the midst of transitioning from the Wild West to a metropolis on the West Coast. The original Broadway store owners were only able to keep it open a few months before it went bankrupt, but it was purchased by Arthur Letts, who successfully expanded its offerings. He took over the entire building and ultimately expanded his chain of Broadway department stores across Southern California. This location remained the flagship for nearly 80 years and was a cornerstone of the burgeoning commercial district downtown. Today, it houses offices for the state of California. You should be approaching the corner of 4th and Hill Street, cross Hill Street when it's safe. On the other side, my friend John Welburn is going to tell you more about how people got around downtown Los Angeles as it expanded back in the early 20th century.
5: Hello. You should be standing by the red line Pershing Square Metro sign facing the giant skyscraper ahead of you that you saw as you crossed the street. Now turn right to head north up Hill Street. Many of the city's most historic sites are in downtown and they aren't all buildings. I'm John Wellborn, and I've lived in Los Angeles my whole life. My maternal grandmother was born here in 1881. She lived to age 98, and I grew up hearing lots of stories about the old days in Los Angeles. That inspired me to dedicate a large part of my life to historic preservation of the city that I love. By now, you should see some orange vehicles on a concrete trestle going up the hillside keep heading towards them. Unlike other major cities, Los Angeles grew over the last century. And when it grew, it spread out instead of up. As a result, today Los Angeles has the biggest municipal street system in the nation, with over 6,500 miles of streets and over 900 miles of freeways. Before we relied so heavily on cars, Angelenos came up with other ways to move around in the growing sprawl including street railways. The several systems of streetcars operated to 1963. But now I'm going to show you what is known as the shortest railway in the world. Stop directly in front of the arch, the orange arch with the turnstiles. Look up this inclined span of track right here. It reaches up for just 91 meters or less than 300 feet not even a full football field in length this is the angels flight railway it is los angeles's only remaining funicular a kind of railway that is designed to go up and down hills using the counterbalancing weight of the two cars at the end of the same cable why do a bunch of office towers need a railway that goes such a short distance That hill wasn't always covered in skyscrapers. You're standing at the base of Bunker Hill, which was one of the most prestigious residential neighborhoods in Los Angeles from the 1860s until after the First World War. This whole area included many Victorian-style mansions. And because of the demand that he perceived, entrepreneur and Civil War veteran engineer Colonel J.W. Eddy decided to open Angel's Flight in 1901 so that residents could travel down the hill to get their groceries and other sundries, as well as go to work in the business district below. Across the street, in 1917, the Grand Central Market was built partly to take advantage of those riders on Angel's Flight. You will visit the market a little bit later. The original Angel's Flight archway was a simple cast iron structure with a two-foot-high cherub above the name Angel's Flight. Look down at your phone, and you can see a photo of the original arch. If the cars are running, and they usually are from 6.45 a.m. to 10 p.m. seven days a week, 365 days a year, you can see, well, just standing to the left of the arch. If they're not, let's head up the stairs to the left of the arch and stop at the landing closest to where the two cars are parked if they are not in service, to get a better look. Angel's flight ran continuously from 1901 until 1969. By 1969, Bunker Hill was no longer a posh neighborhood, and the railway was dismantled in connection with the massive Bunker Hill Urban Renewal Project that led to all the skyscrapers up above and a few more being contemplated for Hill Street near where you were standing. The good news is that Angel's Flight wasn't destroyed during the urban renewal. For 27 years, the cars sat in warehouses and the historic buildings were in a storage yard until local historic preservation leaders got the city to rebuild the flight and the Angel's Flight Railway Foundation, over which I presided for nearly 20 years, reopened the railway for public service in 1996. After running for five years, An accident forced Angel's Light to close in 2001. It reopened in 2010, but three years later, after a brief six-hour derailment, a federal regulator forced the railway to cease operations again. Undeterred, the Angel's Light Railway Foundation immediately started work to get the cars back in service. With an experienced operator on board to provide funds and guidance beginning in early 2017, the foundation was able to address all of that regulator's concerns. In September of 2017, Olivet and Sinai, once again, began making their 298-foot trips up and down Bunker Hill. A ride doesn't cost much, just a dollar one way, or 50 cents if you've got a valid Los Angeles Metro Pass. And believe me, it's worth it. You pay at the top. If you're going to take a ride, pause me now and hit play once you found a seat on the car. Take a look around inside the cars. I put a picture on your phone too. Look how the cars are stepped or tiered inside. Riding on one feels like being on a moving staircase because you are on a seat adjoining the steps. The entire trip takes only 1 minute and 4 seconds, but if you're hauling groceries up the hill or even a latte That sure beats walking the 183 steps from the Hill Street Arch all the way to the California Plaza Station House at the Grand Avenue level at the top. If you're not at the top station yet, just pause me and hit play again after you exit the car and pay at the top. Are you at the top? Okay, let's head back down to the arch, either buying another one-way ride or walking around to the left of the station house down the amphitheater stairs that you'll see on your right, and after you reach the bottom, turn right to head back under to the stairway down the hill. If you're going to take a ride, pause me now and hit play once you've found a seat on the car. If you're a fan of film noir, Olivet and Sinai are pretty famous too. You can see them in noir classics like Kiss Me Deadly and Crisscross. Olivet and the station house up the top, plus Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, also have feature roles in the 2016 musical La La Land. I'm in it too. I'm the guy standing in the doorway in a blue suit and bow tie watching them dance. Now, not just in movies, but in person, everyone can experience this beloved icon of Los Angeles history, Once again, moving up and down Bunker Hill. Now you're back at the bottom. Face the crosswalk. When it's safe, go ahead and cross. Evan Kleiman, one of Los Angeles' best food critics and chefs, who also hosts KCRW's Good Food, will meet you on the other side and show you the historic Grand Central Market.
6: You should be on the opposite side of Hill Street with Angel's Flight to your back. Stop here and look up to your left. This is Grand Central Market it opened inside the Homer Laughlin building in 1917 as a place for locals to do their grocery shopping. It's been in continuous operation ever since. Today, it's a vibrant food hall serving everything from traditional pupusas to Texas barbecue. People come here as more of a culinary destination than a grocery. Let's head up the three stairs to your left under the Grand Central Market sign and go inside. Walk in past the tables just inside between the columns and stop when you get to the main thoroughfare of the market. Look around and take it all in. I love food. I love cooking it, I love eating it, and most of all I love telling people all about great places to do just that. I'm Evan Kleiman and I've been coming to Grand Central Market since I was a kid. Coming down here and riding Angel's Flight after lunch was my favorite outing when I was a little girl. Doesn't the market just beg you to come in and have something to eat? I want to show you a place that Angelinos have been going to since the 1950s. See the bright neon chop suey sign to your right? Stop when you get there. That sign has greeted visitors to Grand Central Market since 1959. Yep, I remember it from when I came here as a little one. At China Cafe's counter, you'll see people from all walks of life enjoying some egg foo young or lo mein. Surprisingly, it's one of the most popular breakfast spots in DTLA. The regulars rush in when the market gates go up at nine for their morning bowl of wonton soup. Look out at the busy center of the market. When the market opened in 1917, the stalls in here sold all kinds of provisions. Take a look at the picture on your phone. Imagine almost a hundred different vendors offering everything you could want. Greengrocers hawking produce, fishmongers scaling their daily catch, butchers carving up sides of beef, not to mention all the stalls selling dry goods, cheese, bread, spices, and more. There even was a stall that sold nothing but eggs. I want to show you another little piece of history. Okay. See the red stairs under the clock with the green neon ring around it? Head down the red stairs, and when you get to the bottom, turn right and stop in front of the first stall. It's the one with the big sign that says Mole, Chile Secos. Before turning it into Chile Secos, Celestino Lopez worked at the stall for the previous owner, who sold dry goods and sundries. He would occasionally suggest new items to his boss for them to sell. A hot sauce, different kind of beans, and each time, they sold really well. When the owner was getting ready to retire, he sold the business to Celestino, who spent his days manning the stall. It let him raise 15 kids, who all helped out in the business at one time or another. Now his daughter, Rocio, runs it. Make your way down to the far end of the display case and look behind the glass. Rocio says that at least twice a day people point to the Oaxaca negro mole and ask if they can have a scoop of chocolate ice cream. She laughs and explains to them that this case is full of a variety of moles, a traditional Mexican sauce, and offers them a taste. Most of the time they end up buying some mole to take home and they don't even remember they wanted ice cream in the first place. Rojo, Poblano, Colorado, Verde and more the moles are their best sellers. They began carrying them in the 90s. The Oaxaca Negro Mole actually has over 30 different ingredients, including chocolate and peanuts. I guess it does kind of sound like ice cream after all. Look at the rightmost section of the shelves holding dry goods behind the counter. See that small framed photograph on the shelf second down from the top? That's Celestino on opening day in 1986. See the hanging scale in the photo? Look down at the right end of the stall. That's it. Right there. They still use it every day. Some things never change. Rocio says that the market's important to her family. They've been proud to own it since 1986 and they plan to still be here in 2086. Many of these stalls like Chile Secos and China Cafe have been here for decades. That's what makes grand central market so amazing its rich heritage exists side by side with all the newer stalls offering tastes of the contemporary la food scene so it's time to check out one of the newer stalls run by a young up-and-coming chef walk back to the red steps you came down but go right towards the other end of the building where you can see daylight pouring in start walking down this main thoroughfare you're entering the main section of the market and I want you to take it all in. You can find tastes from all over the world in here, Thai, Mexican, there's even a currywurst counter if you want a taste of Berlin. A few years ago, I was here with KCRW and for a minute, I was overwhelmed. I was, where do I go first? But then I went over to McConnell's and said, I would like a hot fudge sundae, please. As you're walking, look to your left. It should be right there. Looking all the way towards the front doors, you should see a neon sign in the shape of an egg that says Egg Slut, dead center. Yep, Egg Slut. No one forgets that name. Chef Alvin Kailan opened Egg Slut as a food truck in 2011. His truck became so popular that he decided to open a permanent location. Fortunately, around the same time, Grand Central Market was going through a revitalization. People were coming downtown again and they were hungry for a new experience. You're probably close to egg now. Go ahead and stop where you can see the kitchen staff working. They've really got this breakfast sandwich thing down to a science. Chef Alvin opened his XLET stall in 2013, and people are still waiting in line for the best breakfast sandwich in the city, maybe the world, and it's worth the wait. I completely understand if you want to pause me and jump in line or check out one of the other stalls, or if you're not hungry now, you should definitely come back later to grab something to eat and do some DTLA people watching. You can't go wrong with anything in here. Now, I'm hungry too, so I'm gonna hand you back to Mr. Downtown.
0: I hope you enjoyed walking around downtown Los Angeles with me and my friends. As you can see, DTLA is a vibrant urban hub within this sprawling city. I love sharing our interesting historical and cultural stories, but in my opinion, one of the best parts of this neighborhood is how we represent the rich diversity of LA. So enjoy the exercise as you enjoy DTLA.